Welcome to the Planet Talks program. My name is Natasha Mitchell. I'm from ABC Radio National, ABC RN. I am a science journalist, I'm a presenter, and I also bring you the weekly podcast and show called Science Friction, which is all about culture and science and the messy humanity that gets entangled with science, something our, our guest today knows a hell of a lot about. We are on the gorgeous country of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains for many millennia before this moment and many millennia beyond this moment always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And I hope we learn, continue to learn and learn how to listen from Ghana elders because of course this is what the Planet Talks program is all about. Listening, learning, absorbing, and then maybe a little bit of revolution. You know, sometimes a person is born into the world who listens to the pulse of the planet more than most. And Dr Jane Goodall is one of those people. I think she senses the pulse of the planet in every cell, every twist of DNA. It's just the sense I get about her. And the famous paleoanthropologist Lewis Leakey must have sensed that in the young woman, the 20-something young woman, that they crossed paths somewhere in Africa. She was there visiting a school friend and he just knew something about her that perhaps she was still working out for herself. So at 26, she didn't have a science degree, she had no university qualifications, she had gone to secretarial college straight out of school. She goes to Tanzania. She lands in the forests of Tanzania at, and starts one of the most extraordinary and the longest ever study of chimpanzees, chimpanzee behaviour, culture, livelihood, their passions, their traumas, their grievances. She there, a young white woman, she took her mother initially. Can you imagine? There in 1960 in the forests of Tanzania, 26-year-old woman from England. She'd grown up in World War II and she lands in the middle of the forest with her mum. It's a magical story. But what she did was that she really transformed, she revolutionised our understanding of our closest primate, primate relatives, chimpanzees. She taught us that they had an inner life because she lived alongside them for many, many years and continues to go back when there's not a pandemic on. But then she came to understand that their lives, the lives of all of those creatures in the forest, including our lives, because we are animals too, are under threat because our planet is under threat. And at that point she decided that she was going to become an activist and really for over 40 years now through the Jane Goodall Institute uh, and the Roots and Shoots youth program that they run around the world, some of you might be involved here. Is anyone involved in the Roots and Shoots program in Adelaide or in Australia? Yes, you, fantastic. She's been travelling the world. Uh, I think for most of every year, except during the pandemic, she travels the world. 
to spread the message that we need to come to understand what's going on for this planet, the planet that sustains all of us beings who call it home. Things are difficult right now. There are plagues, there are wars, there is uncertainty, uh, there is global warming. We, we don't know what our future is going to look like. And yet, Jane, who did grow up in, the, in World War II, and so knows about how to be resilient in the face of terribly traumatic events. She has this capacity to hang on to hope, even though she hears stories of tragedy every year. She hangs on to hope, and then she turns hope into action, and she galvanises other people to do the very same. It's quite something. So if you have an opportunity, listen to the Jane Goodall podcast, Hopecast, she calls it. It's beautiful. Um, and also her new book is called The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for an Endangered Planet. Now, Jane would have loved to have been here in person. We would have loved to have done this live. Instead, what we did is a couple of weeks ago, she and so you are joining me at my kitchen table back in Melbourne for this conversation. But what I'd love you to do is let her know that you're here and engage with what she's saying. If you're on social media and you feel like turning to your phone, you might not want to, maybe tweet the Jane Goodall Institute. It's Jane Goodall AU, I think, is the, hashtag, is the um, handle. Jane Goodall AU. Uh, and and um, let her know that you're here. So without further ado, welcome to my kitchen table. And here's Jane Goodall, Dr. Jane Goodall. It's been an amazing journey, this life of mine. This planet has filled me with the wonder of all living things, great and small. We cannot ignore this earth that surrounds us, that feeds us, shelters us, replenishes our bodies and our souls, and stretches our imaginations, where animals, plants, air, water all care for us we're all interconnected people animals our environment when nature suffers we suffer and when nature flourishes we all flourish i do believe in the possibility of a world where we can live in harmony with nature but only if every one of us does our part to make that world a reality so that when you look back over your journey, your life, you can truly say, I did make a difference. Jane Goodall, it's such a treat to have you with us here at Worm Adelaide. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's lovely to be with you. I'm wondering how we should greet each other. Should we do it the way that uh, humans do it, which is a little less bore, a little less interesting than uh, how you might do it the combi chimpanzee way. Well, the way I would greet you if I was a chimpanzee and you were a chimpanzee would be with the distance call since you are in another, well, you are the opposite side of the globe to, to me. So I would need a really good distance greeting, which is <laughs> 
Hello, this is me, Joan. And this is me, Natasha. Uh, we should set the scene because our audience are joining us uh, under the Moreton Bay figs in Botany Park in uh, Atwom, Adelaide. Uh, they're just near uh, the Karawirapari or Red Gum Forest River, otherwise known as River Torrens. Uh, they're on Ghana country. Uh, and uh, not so far away is a beautiful ancient tree, the Wollamai pine, the dinosaur tree. So it's a special setting that you're joining us uh, at today. But you're joining us from your childhood home, and I gather there's a tree there that, that has special meaning to you as well. Yeah. I, I can see beach out of my window here. And when I was a child, I used to spend hours and hours up in the high branches of beach. I took my homework there. I read books up there. I felt close to the birds and the sky. And so it's wonderful that, of course, beach is much bigger now. I couldn't begin to climb him because the lower branch has gone way up. But anyway, there he is. Beach joins you in your 87th year. Yes, that's right. <laughs> A lifelong companion. Why, in, in this conversation about hope that we're going to share today here at Worm Adelaide, why are trees a source of hope for you? Well, trees are the great um, tropical forests particularly. You know, they absorb carbon dioxide, they give us oxygen, and protecting forests and planting trees is something that's incredibly, incredibly important, along with cleaning up the ocean. Those are the two great lungs of the world. Of course, there are other ecosystems that also um, absorb CO2 and provide us with oxygen. But the rainforest and the oceans are the main lungs. It's interesting. This week I spent some time with some ancient red river gums and they were on a sheep farm. So the, the landscape around them was totally denuded, trodden down by sheep. But these ancient big mama trees, you know, 500 years old, some of them, were there. And, and what really struck me was the way in which they have grown over old wounds. You know, they've kind of self-healed despite all the assaults over hundreds of years. And and I draw, in a sense, a kind of a genuine hope from the, seeing those trees, you know. Uh, and I, 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 you see a real resilience in nature in the same way, don't you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, for example, <clears throat> when I began studying the chimpanzees in Gombe National Park in Tanzania, it, it's a very small park, but it was part of the great equatorial forest belt that stretched across Africa in the equatorial region. And by the late 1980s, when I flew over, I was shocked to see a tiny island of forest surrounded by completely bare hills. Mm -hmm. Well, I realized that this was because the people were cutting down the trees in their desperation to get more land for farming or to make money from charcoal or timber. And that's when it hit me. If we don't find ways for these people to make a living without destroying the environment, we can't save chimps, forests or anything else. And so the reason I answer you with this is because uh, gradually the people came to trust us 
gradually they came to realize that saving the environment was for their own future, not just for wildlife. And so they have totally stopped cutting down trees on the steep slopes. And from the ground, where there were seeds and sometimes the roots of trees that once were there, the forest has grown back. And so it's, it's a wonderful example of the resilience of nature. The trees came back, the insects, the birds, the small mammals, and now the chimpanzees have more space. We're certainly facing a time where we are testing the resilience of nature more than ever before. And, and I think of the Australian bushfires just before the pandemic hit us, the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, they were absolutely horrific. Yeah. And yeah. we rallied, we saw devastating footage of koalas burnt, um, kangaroo carcasses, communities lost their homes, animals lost their homes, three billion animals, uh, up to three billion lost their homes or, or perished in those fires. And, and it was kind of front and centre. And then the pandemic hit us and we forgot again. And I wonder how you see that, that kind of disconnect. We turn away, we get lost, we forget our own connection to nature. Yeah, well, the, the whole reason behind the pandemic and the other so-called zoonotic diseases, that's when a pathogen jumps from an animal to a person, spills over, they call it. And if, it, if that pathogen, like a virus, bonds with a cell in the human body, it can create a brand new disease. And over 70% of new human diseases are zoonotic in origin. And it's our disrespect of animals and nature that led to this pandemic. One, we move ever closer into their environment and destroy their environment and hunt them and force some of them into closer contact with, with humans. Then young ones are captured alive, often by shooting the mother, and sent around the world to sell for food, for medicine, for pets, in wildlife markets. And these markets are usually very unhygienic and perfect opportunities for a virus like COVID-19 to spill over and create this disease in us. And if we don't stop treating animals like mere things, then we'll have more pandemics. And that's, you know, people have been talking about this for years, predicting a pandemic like this. Although I doubt anyone would have predicted the exact endemic, the pandemic that we're battling now, because it, it just keeps coming back, doesn't it? You know, yeah. we're getting through one, and then we get a new variant, and then another new, new, new variant. And there's another one in the pipeline right now, which might be devastating. What really strikes me about this virus, this novel coronavirus, is the way in which it probably co-evolved and, you know, lived alongside bats for hundreds of years, if not millennia, um, quite happily, thank you very much. So it was only until it spilt over into us that it became a devastating force. Yeah, that, that's right. Although they're not quite sure it was a bat yet, but whatever it was, or, you know, any of these zoonotic diseases, most of them come from a reservoir in a wild animal, which the wild animal has learned to cope with. And 
but when it when it bonds with a cell in our body it creates a new disease and we have no immunity from it at all what do you think we can or might or must learn from this pandemic well we have to learn that we have to respect nature and animals and stop treating them as though they're just there for us to use and abuse in any way we like and you know there's another there's another thing that's behind all this when i first went to university i'd been in the field for about a year and i hadn't been to college but my mentor dr lewis leakey said i had to get a phd for other scientists to take me seriously so there i am arriving very nervous, never having been to, to college, let alone, you know, at the time, the top science university in Britain. And imagine how I felt when these eminent scientists told me I'd done everything wrong. Chimpanzees shouldn't have names, they should have been numbered. That was scientific. I couldn't yeah. talk about their personality, their mind or their emotion, because those were unique to humans. But fortunately, my dog, Rusty, who you see behind me, uh, had taught me when I was a child, that just wasn't true. And because chimpanzees share 98.7% of DNA with us, because their behavior is so like us, because my to-be husband, Hugo van Lauwe, took film showing all their amazing behavior, scientists had to open up they had to move away from this this reductionist philosophy which put humans in a completely separate category to all the other animals so once that what that line between us and the rest of the animals was broken that meant that we could start looking at other animals in a new way and now sentience is recognized not only in chimpanzees and monkeys and elephants and so on, but right down to octopus. I'm sure you've seen my octopus teacher, haven't you? Yes. And I heard um, your great interview with the director of that film on your Hopecast recently. It was yeah, wonderful. Craig Stanford, Craig has become a terrific friend of mine. But anyway, so coming back to these pandemics, all of these animals that we're mistreating in these wildlife markets and as we traffic them and as we hunt them and sell them for bush meat for money um you know each one is a sentient being each one is capable of feeling depression fear and pain and each one is an individual with his or her own personality and the same is true for the animals pushed together in our intensive factory farms with um, you know industrial agriculture and there too many many pathogens have given humans new diseases people are very attached to traditional sources of food meat factory farming is a way of delivering meat on a large scale to large populations it's a difficult habit for people to break well, you know, it's much less difficult than you might think because some of these new um, non-meat alternatives, they taste and look so like meat, I can't eat them, even though I know perfectly well yes. there's no alcohol in them. 
they I can't eat them because they so it's not that difficult it's just a, a new mindset and luckily young people are getting it young people yes, it's, been, it's been fascinating watching the rise of plant-based meat uh, products over the last few years I mean just literally three years ago they were a novelty and now they've really the consumer is driving that change which is fascinating to me um you have I, just I, written the book of hope but I, I became a vegetarian back in the late 1960s for ethical reasons and um, it wasn't until oh, i don't know a few years ago that i realized the horrific effect on the environment of intensive animal well all intensive farming but especially animal farming because huge areas are destroyed to grow grain to feed them masses of fossil fuel used to get the grain to the animals the animals to slaughter the meat to the table in some places where water is scarce and you know that in parts of australia um water so much water is used to change vegetable to animal protein wasted water and then all these all these animals are producing methane gas, which is a very, very virulent greenhouse gas. And so, you know, for all these different reasons, the rise of vegetarianism, I'm a vegan now, having learned about the cruelty to milking cows and chickens, egg-laying chickens, so. In becoming a vegan, do you feel that you alone are contributing to a change? This is an interesting question, isn't it? Because often people feel hopeless about whether their own actions can make a change, can help the health of the planet. And your argument has been that if we all act individually, the cumulative effect of thousands of small ethical actions will actually make real change. Yeah, and are, are making real change, you know. <clears throat> I mean, I would do it for my own peace of mind, even if I knew it was just me. But it wouldn't make any slightest difference if it was just me. But really and truly, as, as more and more people are moving in that direction towards a plant-based diet, and because I have this, I don't know how it's happened, but I seem to be able to, you know, I've had interviews like this one with you almost every day for the whole pandemic. So my small choices, I can share, and that, that proliferates the number of people who are acting in the same way, so the change gets bigger. It's interesting that though, when you think about thousands of, the cumulative effect of thousands of ethical actions, small ethical actions, one of the challenges of our time is that people have different uh, thoughts about what is ethical. Some believe that nuclear power is an ethical solution to global warming. Others don't. Um, some think that eating meat is is an ethical choice. Others don't. And, and that's that seems to be the trouble of our times, doesn't it? That we can't find a sort of a sort of a shared sense of ethics, shared enough so that we can amplify to affect real change on a mass scale. Hmm. Well, there are some things uh, like nuclear power, you gave as an example. And if there was a safe way of sealing away the waste forever, it probably would be a wonderful answer. But there isn't a way. 
And in fact, it's very scary that a lot of waste that was buried in these containers and dumped in the ocean uh, during the Cold War, um, those containers are about to actually start breaking up. And that's kept very quiet because, you know, the people would be terrified if they knew. So there's, we have to listen to the science but we must not listen to the science that's in the pay of business. And sadly, that's actually true. There are many scientists who are paid by big business and actually perpetrate lies. That's a really tricky thing, isn't it? Uh, because on the one hand, we embrace science to help us get us out of our, this terrible pandemic. On the other hand, you've always, in a sense, maintained both a, a healthy relationship as a scientist, but also you've described yourself as a naturalist. You you have a sceptical mind when it comes to science too. Well, I try and learn as much about a particular issue as I possibly can from all sides. I try to keep an open mind and then come to a decision, usually discussing with people I totally trust. And you always know when there are people you can absolutely trust. Oh, there's so much more we could talk about there. I want to talk about hope because you've you've written the book of hope, a survival guide for an endangered planet, with Douglas Abraham Abrams. Um, and I've been loving your your hope cast, your podcast, all about hope throughout the pandemic as well. Hope is a slippery concept, isn't it? Some people see it as as a kind of passive wishful thinking, even a kind of delusion in a sense. Well, if we have hope, the world will change, but of course it won't, will it? No, no. I, I now see, since writing the book, I've decided to look at it like this, that the human race is at the entrance of a very long and very dark tunnel. And right at the end of that tunnel is a little star, that's hope. It's no good just sitting at the entrance of the tunnel and saying, I hope it'll come to us and illuminate us. No, we have to gird our loins, as the Bible says. I love that expression. I'm not quite sure what it means, but anyway, <laughs> gird our loins. And we've got to then crawl under, climb over, work our way around all the obstacles that lie between us and that star, like climate change, like loss of biodiversity, like poverty, like overconsumption, and all these other things, we've got to work our way around and over and defeat them. And then we can reach hope, hopefully before it's too late. And as we go, we must gather others with us, others who will be inspired because of the effort we're making and our belief that, that we can reach that star before it's too late. You also describe hope as a critical survival trait. How so? Well, because um, if you have no hope, then you kind of give up and you fall into apathy and you do nothing. And if we all give up and do nothing, that's the end of us. We're doomed. You know, we, we, we're literally doomed. So it is a survival trait in a way. It helps us to keep going when things seem grim. And, you know, right now, we're faced with a, a real horror just today. 
and that's Russia invading Ukraine. I, I, I can't believe that's happened. But how can I maintain hope with all these terrible things going on? I think it's because I lived through World War II and there was quite a long period of time, many months, when Britain stood alone against the might of Nazi Germany. The rest of Europe was either invaded, defeated, or had capitulated. And all we had was uh, an air force of very brave young men. We had an army that wasn't prepared for war. The navy wasn't prepared for war. But we had Churchill. And Churchill inspired that spirit of resistance, that determination. We will not be defeated. We will die fighting. We won't be defeated. And, you know, then, unfortunately, he was able to bring America into the war. But I think living through that time of seeming hopelessness and surviving it has, has given me perhaps a different outlook than I might have had otherwise. Yes, and I think of the fact that you also were in Gombe, Tanzania, when the genocides happened in Rwanda and Burundi. Um, Congolese soldiers kidnapped four of your students there in Tanzania. You were in New York City when 9-11 happened. You have seen really at close quarters the very worst of humanity. And I wonder how you you see us emerging for the, from those times. Um, because there is a risk that we retreat back to what's comfortable and what's familiar and, and all the systems and ways of doing things yeah, that we did real... beforehand. <clears throat> yes, and that's exactly why I work so hard to develop our youth program, Roots and Shoots, because that is giving these values of, you know, determination and positivity. And one of the reasons that does give me hope is that as I've been, well, before the pandemic, I was traveling all over the world, and now I'm meeting people virtually instead of face to face, but I'm still meeting them and hearing so many stories of amazing projects of incredible people, this indomitable human spirit, people tackling what seems impossible and not giving up. and there's far more good in people or let's say there's far more good people on the planet than bad people and the media is responsible for a lot because uh, oh, it's newsworthy to talk about the bad things you know the murders yeah. the, the murder of one small person in one town in England can get front page news where the restoration of a whole forest is buried in a tiny little paragraph at the back. And I suppose that says something about human nature, that we, we're attracted by disaster. I mean, I remember, you know, going to um, my father, Brace Motors, not, not professionally, in the, in the good old days, and he took me to a motor race. And everybody's congregated at the dangerous corner where an accident might happen, <laughs> where they want to be. You know, so I understand why the media wants to sell newspapers or programs with disaster. But if only there was an equal coverage of what's good, people would have a different feeling about who we are as a race, as a species. Roots and Shoots has been an incredible program, a youth-led, youth youth-focused program 
sprouting up all over the world for some decades now. And that really was born out of, and I think a lot of people in the audience today will relate to this, born out of young people feeling a real sense of despair and disempowerment. And for those who are parents or grandparents in the audience, they, they will know that children today are growing up with an intense, detailed knowledge about the plight of the environment. And that can be devastating for them. So the reason I began Roots and Shoots was back in 91. And as I was traveling around the world, I was meeting so many young people who even back then had lost hope. And mostly they were just apathetic. They didn't seem to care. But some were really deeply depressed and um, some were angry, you know, even violent. And when I started asking them why they felt like that, they all said more or less the same thing because our future's being compromised and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, we know we've compromised the future of our young people. We've actually been stealing it for years and years, probably since the Industrial Revolution. But is it true there's nothing that can be done? Is it too late? No. And so Roots and Shoots began with the main message, every one of us makes an impact every day. And we get to choose what sort of impact we make. And then, as you said, cumulatively, these small decisions will start to change. But we also decided, uh, it began with 12 high school students in Tanzania. And we also decided that each group would choose, they would choose three projects to make the world better. One for people, one for animals, one for the environment. Because I learned in the rainforest how everything is interconnected. So that program is now in more than 65 countries. We have even some members in preschool, lots in kindergarten, very strong in university, and everything in between. And we also have, of course, those who were part of Roots and Shoots in the uh, early 1990s, and they're now out in the big wide world. We've got some who are in politics, some who are uh, teachers, some in law, and they take their values with them. It's been proved again and again and again. And the number of people who've said, you know, Roots and Shoots changed my life, and I really want to thank you. It's the power of youth that you draw hope from, as well as the resilience of nature, as well as the incredible human intellect, as well as the indomitable human spirit. These are the things that you draw hope from. But, but in terms of Roots and Shoots, is there, a, is there a favorite project that embodies why that excites you so much? The stories are profound, aren't they? There's just thousands of stories and, you know, it's almost impossible to pick. But right now, all around the world, our Roots and Shoots groups are planting trees. Um, they're raising money to support those who are protecting forests. Um, they are working, volunteering in shelters for animals. We had lots of kids in Europe who were raising money and sending over to look after the koalas wounded in your bushfire. You know, I met a, a wonderful group of kindergarten children. It was the last place I went to before being shut down in the, by the pandemic. It was in Berlin. And these were children of about six, seven, 
and they'd made cute little koalas and they were selling them and that money was going to go over to Australia to look after the wounded koalas. And then children across America were finding out the right kind of soil and plant and getting packets of seeds and sending them to uh, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria had devastated the land. So that's what they were doing. And the university roots and shoots were going all around, all around the country, showing people how to plant the seeds, how to use tiny little patches of soil to grow vegetables. Whereas President Trump went to talk to them. And I will never forget, I happened to watch that on videos. He finally went to Puerto Rico to tell people he was sorry. He stood on the platform and threw paper towels to them. Oh, wow. Rolls of paper towels. That's what he mm. did. Mm. Yeah. Uh, your your life story has been one of connecting with other animals. We often forget we're an animal. And I see a very special animal over your shoulder. This this chimpanzee was the very first chimpanzee to ever really let you into his world, to really trust you as a 26-year-old woman. There, there you were, you'd left secretarial college and then somehow found your way to Tanzania. And then somehow Louis Leakey, the famed paleoanthropologist, saw something in you and sent you into the forest to do the longest ever study of behavioural study of chimps. And that, that chimp taught you something taught you many things, didn't he? Well, he, he emphasized what my dog had taught me as, as you know, as it relates to um, being an individual and sentient. But mm. the one thing he showed me that changed the whole, it was the turning point in my study. I only had money for six months when I began. I mean, who was going to give money to this young girl who hadn't even been to college which, by the way, it was simply because we couldn't afford it. That's why I did the secretarial, not that I ever planned to be a secretary. That was a means to an end, to get some money. But anyway, um, four months of my six months had already gone by. The chimpanzees were still running away from me, well, vanishing into the forest. But then this one chimpanzee, David Greybeard, began to lose his fear before the others. And on this one never-to-be-forgotten day, as I'm walking rather wet and cold through the forest on a little trail, I saw him crouched over a termite mound, and I saw him reach out and pick a grass stem. I saw him push it down into the mound where he scratched open the entrance of the termites who were by then flying out to form new colonies. And picking the termites off that were clinging on defending their nest and I saw him break off leafy twigs and to use a twig as a tool he had to very carefully trim all the little side branches so David Graybeard was using and making tools something that science believed was unique to humans we were known as man the tool maker and that's why Lewis Leakey said ah uh, now we must redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimpanzees as humans. But the main thing is, 
he was able to approach the National Geographic Society in America, and they agreed to fund the research when my six months money ran out. And they also sent Hugo van Lauwerk to film chimpanzee behavior. Not, mm. not quite then, but a bit later. And to film um, your work on chimpanzee behavior, really, yes. it was you that was driving the yes. ship there. He, he um, filmed as much of me as the chimps in the first <laughs> That's right. Well, there, therein lies a beautiful love story. <laughs> you know, we are animals too, and I think we often forget that, don't we? Do you think that we need to find our way back to that understanding of ourselves as, as an animal that has who has co-evolved with the planet around us. We should, but, you know, the one thing that um, when we really understand chimpanzees, when we really realize how like us they are in so many ways, I mean, they can be altruistic, but they can also make war and kill. So they're just so like us in so many ways that does help us to understand how we are a very different animal to all the others. And that's in the explosive development of our intellect. So although we know that, you know, chimpanzees, elephants, octopus are way more intelligent than people were prepared to believe or science was prepared to believe even 20 years ago. Um, you know, I mean, the kind of intelligence that is enabling us to talk from Britain to Australia. Mm. And that's a whole different level of intelligence. It's enabled us to design a rocket which went up to Mars and released a little robot to take photographs. And at one time we thought that maybe there was a, an environment on Mars that might support human life. We know now that that's not true. But, uh, you know, the, the bizarre thing is with this amazing intelligence we're destroying our planet it's our only home you draw hope from our amazing human intelligence sometimes i draw the opposite <laughs> and i think that we we are sometimes just too smart for our own, our own good i think of jared diamond's incredible analysis of societies that have collapsed uh, because they took too much of the resources that they were dependent on. Uh, and I do wonder sometimes whether, whether if we go extinct, maybe that's not such a bad thing. The and earth the will rise up around us. <laughs> the planet would be wonderful if we went extinct. But the reason I draw hope from it is that we're beginning to get it. And, Are you we? know, more, more and more people now, I mean, you've got amazing development in um, not in renewable energy from the sun, from the wind, from the tides. And yes, problems to overcome. You know, birds are, are killed by the wind farms and things like that. But these, if we use our brains as we can to solve the problems that we've, that we've inflicted on the planet by our disregard of nature, um, then there's hope. I mean, electric cars. Yes, problems with batteries, but people are working on that. Um, there's people working on this artificial meat so that we don't have to destroy the planet by eating meat and torture animals. There's science working on ways of testing 
uh, new drugs without the use of animals anymore because you can grow animal human tissue and organs on a computer chip so you know we are once we set our minds to it we can find ways of drawing carbon dioxide down out of the atmosphere people are doing it in a small way we just need governments to put money and subsidize these things rather than continuing to subsidize the old boys in the fossil fuel industry so how do we convince governments to represent the planet and its health how do you see that challenge in the current context where we've seen the rise of populist right-wing movements who do not see the planet earth around them no, they only that, see it really as a means of exploit a means of something to exploit yeah but that's partly because uh, at least certainly in the US and the UK there's a whole section of society that has been underserved they haven't had a good education they haven't had good health care they've been basically treated as second or third class citizens and as they do get more information not always accurate but they're getting information from the internet they're becoming angry and you can't blame them I mean if you'd been pushed down as a girl and told that you couldn't go to that school and you couldn't study this and you couldn't do that because you're just a mere girl in a black community uh, you'd be angry once you realized how unfair this was so I, I can understand the rise of this populist movement it's very scary and uh, how you convince a government when you have so many people fighting against what's right because of ignorance I don't know that's why Roots and Shoots is more important than ever especially at university level absolutely it is and and also the, 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 that is the challenge of our time though isn't it to connect everyone no matter what their circumstances meaningfully back to nature yeah yeah and it's a big problem that we're becoming increasingly dissociated from nature and you know very much roots and shoots in the younger children somehow get them into nature if you can't get them into nature bring nature to them um, you know bring plants into the schoolroom little animals into the schoolroom and so on and why it's incredibly important to bring nature into our city since more and more and more people are becoming urbanites and you know they did an experiment in Chicago they took yeah. two areas of high crime in the inner city and one of them they spent a lot of money they brought trees in they put them in the in, in the streets they put window boxes they did everything to green that city that that area crime level dropped and in Japan doctors will prescribe forest bathing once a week you go into the forest and just be and it's good for your mental and physical health so greening our city and urban tree planting is something we're very much encouraging 
with our roots and shoots and something I talk about all the time. Absolutely. Yes. Let's get that tree canopy going in our concrete environments. Bring that, that kind of temperature right down in our communities. Give us shade. Bring insects back to the cities and birds. Yeah. You spoke about anger before. And I, I have to ask, does ang is anger a part of your makeup? Do you, are you fueled by or motivated by a righteous kind of anger? Does it have a role in your life? Love of animals, did you say? Anger, no, of anger. Anger, well, of course I get angry. I mean, we should get angry, but it's a question of channeling the anger and using it to fuel determination to make a difference. That's the way I look at anger. I don't use anger when I'm talking to people. Um, I, I think if you really want somebody to change, they have to change from within. And how do you get that to happen? You have to reach the heart. And how do you reach the heart? Not by shouting at them and telling them they're bad, but by finding a story that will penetrate. And I'll give you one lovely example. Uh, this, I was talking to the CEO of a big international company and he was saying, you know, for the last eight years, Jane, I've been really working to get every part of my organization uh, more ethical, more sensitive to the environment, more fair to the staff along the supply chain, in the country where the product comes from, in the home office and how we treat our customers. And he said there were three reasons. One, I saw the writing on the wall that if we go on destroying natural resources, quicker than nature can replenish them. That's the end of my business. Second, mm -hmm. consumer pressure. People are demanding things made more ethically, providing they can afford them. But he said what really, really changed me was my little girl, eight years old, coming back from school one day and saying, Daddy, they're telling me that what you're doing is hurting the planet. That's not true, is it, Daddy? Because it's my planet. That reached his heart. I wonder what he said to his daughter in that moment, whether he said, well, oh, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall, wouldn't it? Do you think that the next generation of kids, given that you are constantly in contact with young people, especially uh, in before pandemic times when you were traveling upwards of 300 days a year, do you think the next generation of kids coming through with their deeper knowledge of environment destruction. Oh, absolutely. Do you, think that, do you think they will, though, use power differently? Or will they be consumed by power in the way that people are today, in the way that leader, leaders are today? You mean power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Um, oh, they won't have the of power. They'll just, most of them, just be, you know, normal citizens. And as I've said, they, they are taking those values with them. And one of the main values is respect. Respect for animals, respect for nature, and respect for each other, no matter what the color of your skin, your culture, your religion. We're all human beings. And because we try and bring groups of roots and shoots together, usually virtually, but some, I mean, like in Tanzania, we bring Christians and Muslims together all the time. And 
they, they don't make any difference when they're talking to each other. Mm. They're human beings. Do you think that we might mobilise? I mean, it's been remarkable, hasn't it, to see how we've mobilised as a, a global population around the pandemic. When, when there was a real need, we mobilised. And yes, there have been, the rich have got richer and the poor have got poorer and many communities don't have access to the vaccines that they need to have access to for the entire world to escape this pandemic. We know that, but do you take inspiration from how we've responded to this pandemic? Yes, I think during the pandemic, as every other major disaster, it tends to bring out the best in people, but in some people it brings out the worst. And, you know, I just hear that, I think it was, it was one of the big pharmaceutical companies anyway, and their profits went up in, in the millions because of the vaccine that they produced. And, you know, that money shouldn't have gone into their shareholders' pockets or rises for their executives. It should have gone into providing the poor countries with the vaccines that are so badly needed. On the other hand, other companies provided lots and lots of free vaccines. So it brings out the best and the worst. But it was very encouraging to see how people helped each other, how people offered to take food to those who couldn't get out. People offered to walk dogs for people confined to their houses. You know, there was an awful lot of community spirit. That was the community spirit I referred to in World War II in the UK, in Britain rather. And some people think that we need a kind of war footing attitude to mobilise around climate change and global warming. And I wonder what gives you hope that we will rally as a species to solve the challenge of global warming. It's a fundamental rethink, isn't it, of how we live. Yeah, I think the hope comes from the fact that I know we have the tools available to us. We know how to do it. We know what to do. It's getting the will to do it. You know, science science could solve many of these problems um, if there was the will to do it. And so that's why my work is trying to help people understand that we can do it. And if we get together and each do our part, we can save our save ourselves on the planet before it's too late but you know i'm not a i'm not a dreamy idealist i know that we've only got this window of time and it's closing so my hope is tempered by reality hope yes we can do it if we will mm. yes and i know you get big crowds of people chanting yes we will yes we can yes we will um i mean you've had a profound effect on people you have become in a sense a global messenger for for, for hope and i wonder in your 87th year what your next big project is because you've taken it all on all of the time what do you have your eye on now well i don't have my eye on it but um, when people ask me what my next great adventure will be, I say dying, because 
when you die, there's either nothing, in which case, fine, you're gone, and that's it, you won't have to worry about anything ever again, or there's something. And I happen to believe there's something, although I have not the faintest idea what it is. And what greater adventure can there be than finding out what that something is, if it exists? <laughs> that's a project. <laughs> I mean, otherwise, I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing until I can't do it anymore. What do you feel most urgent about right now that you'd like the audience here at Wom Adelaide to help you with? Well, what they can help with, you know, is growing roots and shoots. <clears throat> I think that's the most important. Out of these other things, climate change, loss of biodiversity, uh, and so on, um, you know, the they're all important. You can't really pick one thing. I say to people, eat less meat. Um, that's just one thing. But something everybody can do is to get involved in some way with helping young people to have a different mindset. Because young people change their parents and their grandparents. They grow up to become teachers and parents themselves. And so, you know, I'm to feel a desperate urgency to get roots and shoots into more and more places. So since the pandemic, we've got a brand new institute in um, Israel with roots and shoots groups. Um, and we've got a brand new JGI in India and roots and shoots is spreading across that great continent. We've got 2000 groups in China even. Incredible. What's happening in China? Well, the, the young people are working on, you know, animal and environmental problems. They're helping old people. They're going in to, to bring some sunlight to children with cancer, long-term hospitalization. Um, they're helping the migrant children to feel that they do matter. They know far more about the countryside than the urban children do. So that, you know, they pick projects that are suitable for the environment they live in, the economic, socio-economic situation in which they find themselves, and they're politically sensitive. They don't do things that will upset the government. Because for you, healing the planet is a social challenge, it's an environmental challenge, it's an economic challenge. It is multifaceted, isn't it? It's the, the, yeah. the human story at the heart of it is complex and fascinating all at once. Yep. Jane Goodall, thank you so much for joining us at WOM Adelaide this week. I hope you can get back on the road and get travelling again uh, very soon. Thank you so yep. much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I've had a lovely talk with you. Thank you. Take care. Mm -hmm. Bye. Jane Goodall.